Welcome. This is Scott Cannon from the Kansas City Stars Newsroom, and you're on the Deep Background Podcast. Uh, today we're going to talk tech again, and I've got uh, remotely with us Dan Wallach, a professor at uh, Rice University's Department of Computer Science. Welcome, Dan. Pleasure to be here with you. Well, thanks. We're going to talk a little bit about how to be safe with your your phone and your computers and whatnot. And I think the, sort of the, the big new thing that's happened in the last couple of weeks is the guy who is sort of responsible for all the crazy passwords that we have with exclamation points and at signs and whatnot is has said that he rethinks it and that we're better off going a better a different direction by just having longer simpler passwords so long crazy phrases like i work at the racetrack except when i'm not at the at the stadium dan am i summarizing that at all right or have i got it wrong well it's certainly the case that having users required to have passwords full of punctuation and other weird things is just complicated it's hard for users to do and they end up repeating the same password on multiple websites so if it gets stolen from one it can be reused on the others right and you know i've always told people you know write a uh uh, the advice I've been giving people for a while is is being discounted here a little bit. That I, I would tell people, use that sort of license plate language where you use symbol, you know, the at sign is an A, and so you make hater out of H8R, and but a couple more characters that not be anything from the dictionary. And But this new thinking is it's more the number of characters than the... And the other thing I would tell people is, I, you know, take two letters from the website, put them at the end of the beginning, so you're not using the exact same um, password across the, the Internet. That looks like bad advice now. And the, it, it's more numbers. It just, the, the, the more characters you have, the stronger the password. Is that the latest thinking, or have I screwed that up? The trick is that any given computer user could carefully figure out some pattern where you have some base password and then you add some custom thing, but very quickly you run out of space in your head that you'd rather use for other things in your life. Sure, and absolutely. At some point you have to find an alternative. So there are several different alternatives today that are much better than simply trying to have stronger passwords stored in your head. Uh, I can talk quickly about a couple of them. There are several programs that call themselves password managers. And what they do I is I just signed to, up for one of those a couple months ago, and it's made my life much easier. Was that, you could tell me that was smart or not? Well, the problem is the password managers themselves can sometimes be attacked, <laughs> which you'd think, oh, God, what now? But yeah, so not all <laughs> password managers are created alike. One option is if you always use one web browser, like say Google's Chrome, it will remember your passwords for you, mostly, except sometimes when a website changes itself around and then the Chrome password remembering system doesn't always work. So those trying to have really good passwords is dicey. So what can you do? What are the alternatives? Well, there are really two alternatives today that are considered where we're going and how it ought to be done. One alternative is to have what's called uh, two-factor authentication. So some websites, especially banks, will love to send you a text message and then make you type in that number. Um, newer systems 
are letting you install an app on your phone that generates numbers that you have to type in. So you still have a password, but you also have to type in a number from your phone. Now that's a little bit annoying. And there are newer things called um, key fobs, which is to say plastic USB doodads that you put on your keychain next to your car keys. And when you need to, you shove that thing in a USB port on your computer, press a button, and then it makes up a password specific for each website. And without going into the gory cryptographic details, they actually got it right. So this, this key fob, which speaks a standard called um, U2F or FIDO. So these are like $15 at Amazon. You buy it once and it works for Google, for Amazon, for Facebook, for several other websites that know how to support it. So you put in your password, but you also shove this thing into a USB port and press a button. And you only have to do that once in a while. Then the website and your browser have a little conversation and remember that it's okay that this user from that web browser are visiting me and I don't need to ask for the, for the key fob all the time. All right. That's, Does that work? My, my phone doesn't have a USB port. Does that create a problem here? So then there's what do we do with your phone? There are newer versions of these U2F key fobs that actually know how to talk directly to your phone through the radio. Those are still new and they aren't widely supported yet. The other thing is that in many cases, we're, we're moving to this other thing, which is that many websites don't ask for a password at all. Instead, they have a button that says log in with Facebook or log in with Google. And that means that Google and that website and you, your browser, have a little conversation where the only thing that you, the user, sees is a little pop-up that says, hi, this website is asking Facebook whether we can tell them that your name is Dan Wallach. Yes or no? And if you click yes, then that website gets a pretty strong proof that you are Dan Wallach, say, without you ever typing any password to anybody. So these, there are very- Is the nice thing about that that I've, if I think of this as an arms war between the hackers and the black hat hackers and, and me, I've enlisted as an ally in this instead of some random website that I want to sign into, a player with, with more muscle in the, in, in, the, in the form of Amazon or, or Facebook. Exactly. Or, or, or Google or Facebook, right? Yeah, and so the, the sort of future that I think will make users much happier is when you have a handful of companies choose the one you trust. If you like Google, use Google. If you like Facebook, use Facebook. And everybody else will rely on them. And then when I want to log into some random website that I don't know much about, rather than having to have yet another username and yet another password, it'll just click here to log in with Google. I click and then it says, are you, hey, hey Google here, are you okay telling so-and-so website that your name is Dan Wallach? You hit yes, done. There are still a lot of technical details to making that right, but it means that, yeah, somebody at Google is worrying about the gory details and you don't have to because you're never typing a password. Right, and in your life, would you be more comfortable with that setup, outsourcing that defense to Google or somebody that large? Um, it, it, it beats having to remember hundreds of passwords. Mm -hmm. 
It's much better than having to remember my answers to every password recovery question that I used on every website. Those things are terrible. Right. And, but but you also are sort of banking on the idea that somebody like Google has so much at stake and also has so many resources that that maybe is the safest way to travel. Right. You're banking on one of a small number of companies that you trust. In this case, I put a lot of trust in Google. And in return, Google helps solve this problem. Like Google is very active in helping develop and push those $15 USB key fobs. So Google has done a remarkable amount of engineering, and you buy this thing for 15 bucks on Amazon. And you don't have to use it with Google, you can use it with other websites, but it all just works. And the fact right. that it works as seamlessly as it does is not an accident. It's a result of a lot of people from a lot of companies working together to make it happen. Right. And the one problem with the fob is it like all like our keys they can be lost and that would be you know not disastrous you'd have to you know respond to a lot of emails is this really you but it wouldn't be the end of the world right right you you at some point like Google's answer is you print a sheet of paper that has 10 single use recovery numbers these are like 10 digit numbers so when I set up my two-factor authentication with Google, I printed this thing out, and then I put it in my safe deposit box with other valuables. And I hope I never need it, but it's stored safely away. Right, right. Let's talk about, uh, and I sort of want to tap into the head of a brainiac who deals with these things, how that translates to your behavior online. In setting up this podcast, you're in, in Texas and I'm in Missouri, and so I'm having you record this separately. And so we were talking about it. You would downloaded an app to your phone to make the recording. And you were, in our conversation, you were very, you know, mindful of the permissions that the app was asking, one to record and, and do a couple other things. Is that reasonable to ask uh, layman to be quite so um, cognizant of what we're giving up there? Uh, or do you reject many apps because they ask for too much? And how do I, the other, the other thing I would ask is, I don't know if I, if I say yes to one and no to the other, does that typically mean that the, the app is going to say, well, you can't use me at all if you won't let me look at your pictures? Well, there's certainly a lot of apps these days that request permissions that they don't really need. You know, a voice recorder app that I'm using to help you get a beautiful, uh, high-quality copy of my voice for this radio podcast does not need to know my location. And if right. it wants to know my location, then I'm not interested in using it. And luckily, there were like literally 10 different apps named voice recorder from different um, organizations, most advertising supported, that would do the job. And yeah, there's a little ad in the bottom of my screen while I'm talking to you. But for free, I have a tool that solves a problem. And I'm willing to put up with a certain amount of advertising in return for a certain amount of functionality. And that's okay. And when apps really abuse this system, that's where Apple and Google put their foot down and say, you're going too far. And exactly how they detect misbehaving apps and when they choose to punish them is something that is evolving. Both companies, Apple and Google, are aggressively policing their app ecosystems. 
and they don't disclose all the details, but they do make it very clear that misbehaving apps are not welcome and will be booted out sooner or later. Right, right. Let me switch gears just a little bit. I got two more areas I want to cover with you. One is parochial, and that's the uh, presence of Google Fiber in the Kansas City market. It, it, it's interesting to me, I watch a lot of the trade press, and there's always stories out there talking about Google Fiber is, is going down the tubes or that Google Fiber has been a failure. I, I can find you people here in Kansas City who say it's done a lot to uh, jumpstart the tech community, tech entrepreneurs here. But, um, you know, it's, it's sort of my observation that what, what, what it's done is brought us faster broadband and has pushed down the price per megabit of uh, broadband speed in the market in, in, in term, and also on the competitors, but that it hasn't really changed the way people use the internet here, uh, other than maybe they stream a few more movies. Do you see Google Fiber as a success, a failure, something that's yet to be a success, that we it's too early to judge? Would you expected more to happen in a community when you delivered this kind of upload and download speeds to folks' living rooms? Uh, without a doubt, Google Fiber is bringing more competition to the market, and more competition means higher quality and lower prices. And that, all by itself, is a huge win. The internet that we get in this country is much slower and much more expensive than what you can get in many other countries. That, you know, I'm just going to pick a couple off the top of my head, like South Korea, you can get scandalously fast internet for a fraction of what you pay here. And, you know, some of that's structural. You know, the bulk of South Koreans live in Seoul in big high-rise apartments, which means right, a lot that of the, density. the cost to wire them up is just lower. You know, we don't have, you know, in America, we're more spread out. But, you know, like the density in New York is not all that different from the density in Seoul, yet in New York you have to pay a fortune to get crappier service. So more competition is... Is the, is the way that we hope we can eventually get more reasonable prices, more reasonable amount of bandwidth. And what does that do? Well, part of it is it, it makes it possible for a company like Netflix to effectively compete with the cable company. It says that now I can get high quality television at you know, visually high quality and for reasonable price, get things I want without having to deal with my cable company. That's, you know, breaking that monopoly is a great thing. Is it going to change our world? Well, maybe, maybe not, but it changes it a little bit here and a little bit there. One thing that, that, so I live in Houston, we don't have Google Fiber, but the pressure of Google Fiber on Comcast and AT&T, who do provide service here, they're looking over their shoulder. And sure enough, for less money now, I can get a lot more bandwidth from AT&T or Comcast today than I could 10 years ago. And part of that is the pressure of Google Fiber, even though they're not even in the market here. Right, and, and that would be a win for Alphabet, the Google parent, even though they're not selling anything in, in terms of a broadband connection in Houston, because this is what they wanted all along. They want people to have faster connections so they'll, be, they'll do more things online. Would that be right? Yeah. Google has figured out that when the internet connection is faster, people use them more. 
And if you use them more, then they can sell you more advertising. And also, you know, that, that could mean that you watch more YouTube, which means more YouTube advertising. It could mean that you just do more searches, which means more search advertising. Or it could mean that, you know, once you have enough bandwidth, then things like online backups or online files start to make a lot of sense. You know, there are all sorts of companies that will sell you services to back up your local computer to whether it's Google Drive or something that's stored on Amazon in the back end or whatever. Once you have enough bandwidth, that all just magically works. So, you know, it's at this point, I can work from home now in a way that I never could have done 10 years ago. My internet connection in my house is very close to the internet connection I have in my office in terms of how fast it is. That's a big deal. Right, and and and, and as you say, all that activity online is is a way in which Google might sell more ads to somebody somewhere. Um, finally, let's. I want to talk about an area you've got a particular area of expertise, and that's the security of online or not online. Excuse me but of, of voting machines and our voting systems. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk about what happened in the 2016 election. There's nothing terribly concrete that suggests that um, uh, the, the electronics of our voting system were necessarily hacked. But can you tell me how confident you are that we're in a good space, that we, that we can, in the elections to come in 2018, 2020, 2024, that we can believe that the, the totals that we're seeing reflect what the ballots that were cast, electronic though they may be? Well, the answer to your question varies from state to state. Different states use different voting technologies and have different regulatory requirements. You know, in here in Texas, we still use the same electronic voting machines that we were using a decade ago when studies were conducted in California and Ohio and Florida that found impressive security vulnerabilities. And those states, like Florida, banned these electronic voting machines and shifted over to paper. Texas, it's like nothing happened. We're using the same stuff, even though it hasn't improved at all. And you know, the attackers only get better, and if the defenders aren't improving their game, that's not good. So I have serious concerns for some states like Texas that just aren't moving the ball down the field at all. Other states seem to be doing better, but even if you have paper ballots, which we think is a best practice, that's necessary but not sufficient. You have to have the practices in place to actually look at them. One of the big results of the 2016 election, never mind who won, but from the Jill Stein recount effort, we learned that the procedures for recounts, I mean, in the three states where she asked for them, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, really were not adequate. Um, if you originally tabulate your ballots by scanning them, you should probably recount them by hand because if there's something wrong with your tabulator, your electronic tabulator first, and you just reuse the same thing, you'll get the same answer and you won't detect any problems. Well, excuse me, let me interrupt you on this. Are you suggesting that all ballots that are scanned should also be counted by hand? And if so, what's the point of scanning them? Well, so the best practice is what's called a risk-limiting audit, where you tabulate them electronically because it's fast, and then you sample them by hand and compare them to make sure they match up. So uh, a, sample, a sampling process 
So this is being done in various ways in the state of California. Colorado just adopted something like this. These kinds of, let's sample the paper and make sure it matches up to the electronic votes. That is considered a best practice because it is both efficient and it improves the security of the system. Okay, and the we'll always have a bit of a, uh, you know, a patchwork here because this is a, a responsibility that we've delegated to the states. There's not a national voting system, and it would, I, I suspect it might even take something on the order of a constitutional amendment to, to create that. Am I right? We, we can't nationalize this process entirely? The, the way voting works is that states manage their elections. The federal government produces what are called voluntary standards that many but not all states require. And I don't think that there's much, um, much desire among state election officials to change the way that the game works. Um, we could make arguments for and against, but certainly I would like to see better I mean, the federal government could invest a lot more money in producing stronger voting systems, more robust voter registration databases, in order to help protect states which don't have the kind of skills to defend themselves. Just like earlier in this podcast, we talked about Google being a stronger way of managing your password, you know, log in with Google, log in with Facebook. Well, you, right. in the same way, we would like to have you know, the, the, we don't have 50 states worth of experts in defending against foreign adversaries trying to compromise our elections. So if we could somehow centralize the defenses and you know, create a, a clearinghouse to help states manage their security issues, that could be a huge win. And then the, then the challenge would all still be to get the states to spend that money. And should it be the state spending the money? Should it be the federal government spending the money? Should it be some kind of coalition? You know, the, now we're lost in the weeds of the politics. But right. the fact is that we have the skills and expertise in the federal government to help defend the states, and that's not being done adequately today. Gotcha. Great. Well, listen, we covered a, a bit of territory. Dan, thank you so much for being with us. And the folks out there, thanks for you to listening to Deep Background. <laughs>